Yo, fatties, welcome back to the catch-up. Uh, it's Eli. And I'm Jeff. And I'm sitting in my bed, bro. I'm, this is Why not? <laughs> At what point do I get to film a podcast sitting in my bed? So uh, my, my girlfriend and I live together, you know, Christine, and uh, we have an office, but we're both taking calls all day, so we kind of rotate who gets the private space. <laughs> so, Dude. I'm glad to be there because there's been lots of calls where I haven't been in a quiet space. So working with with what we got for sure. No, I hear you, man. I had to go up to my bedroom. Frankly, I've been working in my kitchen and then Andrew works. My brother works in like the downstairs little nook, but he's on calls all day and and we're recording a podcast. I'm not trying to hear his like boring ass banking talk. Um <laughs> So, you guys, thank you so much for listening and dealing with, uh, you know, dude, it's funny. Like, we're recording this, too, but it's funny seeing, like, The Daily Show and watching these, like, awesome late-night yeah. hosts. Like, they're shooting in their bedroom. Like, they're shooting in their closets. Uh, and it's so funny. It's like, you know, they have all this money and, like, are they not sending them equipment to film properly? It's wild. It's wild. Well, I think the thing you have to remember, too, is that even if they send equipment, is Trevor Noah, you know, ready to handle more equipment than like a single camera facing thing, right? Because I'm True. thinking about it for myself, right? Am I ready to engineer, audio engineer, like a podcast by myself, which we had to make this new setup of the podcast jeff slash dummy proof <laughs> to make sure that i can essentially put on my airpods open my laptop and the audio will be at least audible in some fashion right because i think in previous conversations of the podcast we would be talking about is this the creamiest silkiest. best sounding silkiest <laughs> can we get and right now we're just like yo can we put up podcasts yeah, with dude. audio that that people can hear and that's been the new priority dude what's wild is though i've seen so many innovative things that are almost better in this kind of new world that we're living in you mentioned trevor noah i don't know if you've actually seen any of his most recent stuff it's really funny and he uses the value of being at home and having to shoot what's happening is essentially his crew probably sent him a camera and some crude instructions on how to set it up and then they're like yo just film just keep recording and we're gonna cut it together later and they basically have this internet vibe edit aura to it where he's like a lot of his punchy jokes are punchier because he gets the jump cut and it's okay because it's like looks like it's filmed on his phone and yeah. now he has those YouTube humor to it where if he's sitting in his beautiful studio with a live audience, you can't get that jump cutty stuff. So yeah. people are people are, are winning here on, on the content end. And, and it's funny because we're kind of implementing that too. Um, you know, at Food Beast, we started doing these as soon as we got sent home. Our team got real creative. Our video team got real creative. It was like, we need to do our weekly cooking challenges but what we're going to do is we're going to pick an ingredient every week. So this past week was instant ramen. So we send instant ramen to every member of the team. And a few of us turned our home kitchens into these satellite Food Beast Kitchen studios. So myself, uh, Chris, Oscar, Mark, and Costa. Those are members of our video team. And essentially, everyone has found their own little voice and their own... The beauty of it is we're sending them with, they have their camera equipment, they have the ingredient, but we're asking everyone to edit and film their own video where previously it would be a whole team filming one person and that gets chopped up. But what has happened essentially is we get these six or seven every week, really unique, not just recipes. They're not just unique because Oscar makes an elote ramen with like corn and cheese and mayo and that goes viral. But it's the storytelling tied to each recipe that we would never have done in like the true studio bloated session that we were doing even a year ago. And dude, it's wild. So this past week, ramen, it's fun. So I made a, I'm proud of myself because I can't cook. 
and I made this spicy peanut butter pepper ramen using like Szechuan peppercorns. Definitely inspired by like Dan Dan noodles. This wasn't like a unique recipe other than I love to use my new Szechuan peppercorn stash. Um, Chris... Chris on our team is extremely crafty and I just like think of him as this like craftsman auteur where for him, when we gave him instant ramen, he was like, I'm not going to use this. And we're like, Chris, you got to use it, man. Play along. And he goes, screw it. I'm making fresh noodles, but I'm going to pulverize <laughs> the instant ramen in a blender and then make fresh dough from the instant ramen. And sure enough, Oscar had the most viral of all the recipes and his was that elote ramen. It's, it's wild. And long story short, it's just been so fun to watch us kind of create under the circumstances. And it's not just relegated to us late nights doing a great job too. And it's just fun seeing what people are doing right now. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and I keep commenting internally about how excited I am because you're seeing all the comedic elements from everyone in our office because they have the ultimate freedom of what I am creating is fully shot, owned, edited, and essentially published by the individual. And so, you know, you're seeing these personality traits um, like Oscar and Fanbot and Mark to come out in a way that, yeah, when as a team, even if the product is more polished, it also becomes homogenized, not in a bad way, like it, we like our production value, but the stripping of the 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 audience expectation, right? I yeah. mean, because ta you talked about Trevor Noah, and now that I've seen him in a hoodie on his couch, like I don't ever need to see him in a suit and in the same way, you know, I think our videos is if you still get the utility of with these ingredients, you can make elote ramen, no matter how in a studio, how well it's shot, if you get that information and it looks good and then it tastes good when you make it, that's really all you need, right? And I think we, we saw that. I mean, the amount of impact on that video, even if it was made in a small underlit kitchen staffed by one person who is producer food stylist camera op editor publisher you know it's it's been really fun things have changed man it's wild it's 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 curious too as we move forward and try to think about the new norm that we're in and then what's to come like a lot a lot of stuff is up in the air like will our recipe videos look like this in six months even if we have the full kitchen studio like Essentially, if the audience at home really enjoys it and it feels connective to them, like you mentioned with Trevor Noah, like, do you want to see him in a suit and tie anymore? Or do you want to relate to this gentleman that you know is an intellectual, but he looks like you? You know what I mean? Like, you can relate. The kitchen looks like ours. You know, it looks like yours. And I think that that common ground has been really dope silver lining amongst all of the bullshit that we have to deal with, with coronavirus. I mean, even with the podcast, just to get back to it, you know, now that we have this like Zoom casting that we're, we're doing, you know, you and I have just been like two weeks ago, the last podcast episode we launched was how coronavirus is worse than 9-11, right? Yeah. For the restaurant industry. At the time- Worse than 9-11 and the 2008 credit crisis combined. Yeah. At, at the time, two weeks ago, or even more than that, two weeks ago- that felt like a hot take. And now, two and a half weeks later, that feels dumb. That feels not, not just dumb. It just feels like, damn, that's dated already. Like, of course yeah. it's worse. Restaurants are not allowed to serve food in a lot of capacities. Their dining rooms are closed. Of course, this is a really bad look for the restaurant industry and the ramifications of it at all. So what, what ended up happening is you and I were like, dude, what? Every day that passes feels like a year and there's so many conversations we could have. We're trying to figure out you guys at home that are listening. We know a little bit about you guys. We know a little bit that you're either a huge foodie, you're a huge fatty, you might work in a restaurant, you might be a chef, you might own a joint, you might be in marketing and PR around those restaurants. Um, and it was almost like crippling for us to figure out like, well, there's so many different types of people we could talk to right now, but what's going to have the most impact? 
we essentially just, you know, we have the tech now. We're like, fuck it, dude. Let's record every conversation we have with restaurant owners. Uh, we're lucky to have a lot of friends that may own one restaurant. They may own hundreds. Uh, we have banking friends. We have SBA, small business administration friends. We're like, let's just talk to as many of them as possible and record it. And hopefully some gems come out the other end. Um, and so I know you and I, since Jeff, we've just been recording together and not together and just trying to have as many of these conversations. You ended up having a really dope one with the California Restaurant Association. And I didn't know much about them before, but can you just give me a little bit of tidbit about what we're about to hear? Yeah. So I think the average person who's listening to this podcast uh, might have experienced a restaurant association in a very certain way. Um, but after, after the holidays are over in December, um, restaurant landscape in January, February is typically really low demand, right? So people kind of spent all their money over the holidays, they're eating out less. And so a lot of these local organizations kind of said, Hey, well, let's do something to bring people in restaurants. So if a couple months ago, if Eli, you, if you remember going into a restaurant, and you might have seen something like a special menu or, you know, a card on on the table that says, hey, we have this $35 pre-fee menu that's three courses. Right. And it's at, a, it's at a, you know, a pretty big discount in comparison to what they normally serve. Um, so you might have heard of it as a restaurant week. And I think that's the most tangible example that our audience like might be vaguely aware of these these types of organizations. But I got to speak with the CEO of the CRA, Jock Condi. And the CRA is like, if we've all experienced maybe, like there's an Orange County um, uh, restaurant association, there are LA restaurant associations, but the California one is basically the, uh, it's uh, a lobbying body that represents all restaurants on 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 behalf of restaurants. And so- what was really interesting to me is that we were able to talk to someone that if as things are changing as rapid fire as they are, which in the U.S. is like on the hour, there's a headline that you feel like you have to read, um, is that they're on the phone with Eric Garcetti, the Los Angeles mayor, as things are changing. They're on the phone with Gavin Newsom's teams, the governor of California, to make sure that restaurant voices are being heard with all the crazy changes that are happening. So it's not only it's been important in the midst of restaurant closures, which we all know about, uh, but there's also a role to be played in the reopening of the state and to make sure that um, as these legislative changes are happening, uh, that they don't happen without someone knocking on that door from the restaurant's perspective and saying, hey, uh, we need to take this into consideration um, when we're uh, thinking about these types of changes. So in theory, these are this is the body, the governing body, if you will, that's supposed to be representing small and large restaurants. Like so when, yeah, when the government's and moving and shaking, hopefully someone's speaking up for the restaurants is, is yeah, the hope. It's an, it's an advocacy group. So it's not, it's not a governing body per se, but it is active politically, um, which I think we've talked to restaurants. There are pros and cons that the restaurants can feel about an advocacy group. But I think for the most part, especially in this dire time, uh, you know, having someone that can speak to uh, the politicians at a local and state and federal level is what you're seeing with like the National Restaurant Association speak mm. to the president. Um, that it helps to have someone in the room or because the alternative is you have no voice in the room as these changes are, are being made. So one of the big things about this conversation and why I'm excited for people to listen is there was just so much knowledge about the restaurant industry that I thought I either did know or would have known because we're food beasts. We talk about restaurants all the time. And the amount of information that was brand new to me uh, really kind of blew my mind. And 
the major thematic of of this conversation is is really surrounding how restaurants bind our communities together beyond just serving food for for people to eat and so uh, whether it's the the sales taxes that um, go to the state and local counties that fund a lot of programs whether it's the actual direct employment of the millions of workers in California alone that are um, employed by this industry. And then as we know, and I think what Eli, you and I miss the most, which is the restaurants that act as a third space for us to together to bring friends and family and, and to just have a place to connect with people and, and so in all those ways, this conversation was enlightening, and, and I hope it's enlightening uh, for our audience as well. Dope, man. Let's jump into it. Well, I'm really excited to welcome the president and CEO of the California Restaurant Association, Jock Condi. Uh, I'm also excited to welcome the executive director of the Foundation and Restaurants Care Program, which is an emergency assistance fund for California restaurant workers. Jot, I'd love to dive in with you with you first. And before we get into uh, the COVID-19 conditions, which we will talk to, I'm sure, at length because of the current environment, I'm curious about how big the restaurant industry in California was coming into 2020 um, and how many people uh, depended on the hospitality industry uh, for their take-home income. Uh, well, I mean, uh, you, you know, uh, before this happened, so, so three weeks ago, Cal the California restaurant industry was the second largest private sector employer in the state. Wow. 1.4 million people that work in the food service industry in this state, um, about 100,000 restaurants. So a significant uh, contributor to California's economy, and certainly a large number of Californians rely on the health of this industry to support their their livelihood. And again, before we go into coronavirus, for the our listeners who who may or may not be completely aware of the role and function of a restaurant association, um, can you give just kind of a, a brief understanding of the role that the California Restaurant Association plays um, within the industry? Yeah, um, you know, so a, a significant role and it's not necessarily seen by most of the public and unfortunately many of uh, the restaurant industry. Uh, but there's a restaurant trade organization in every state in California. And then there, of course there's a national organization that we have uh, an affiliation with. We're not the same entity, we're not a subsidiary of theirs, but we've worked together on a lot of public policy issues. But um, the California Restaurant Association is the largest and oldest restaurant trade group in the country. We were founded in Los Angeles in 1906. And we were founded, um, you know, uh, because there was a handful of restaurant owners in downtown Los Angeles that, that got sick and tired of getting kicked around by City Hall and decided, hey, let's get together, you know, and defend and promote uh, our industry. So, of course, 100 plus years later, we're still doing that. We're much larger, uh, but we play a significant role in promoting um, the health of the industry uh, within sort of the halls of government. Uh, we uh, pr promote the, the, the benefit of the industry and the, and the importance of the industry to the public. Um, but a lot of the work that we do um, we have advocates that do um, spend a lot of time in the state capitol building. We have advocates that work for us that spend time discussing policy issues with mayors of big cities, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Jose, Sacramento. Um, and so we're constantly meeting with policymakers to you know, promote the, the industry and make it a viable industry. I uh, spend a lot of time in the courts, so um, a lot of people don't see this, and it's not on the front page of newspapers, but there's a lot of litigation that we're engaged in. 
Um, and then we provide um, a, a, an important service to the restaurant industry where we focus on education and compliance. Um, certainly, you know, the restaurant industry is regulated uh, by more government entities, whether it's city, county, you know, health departments or the state and federal government than most, most other industries. Um, and so staying in compliance with the law is super important. Um, and that a service that we provide for many restaurants is providing them legal advice, compliance advice. So there's a lot that we do, but primarily it's to make sure that the industry is healthy. So adv- advocacy seems to be uh, a major uh, pr- component uh, of what you guys do for the industry at large. Um, and that seems especially uh, important in this current environment um, as things are changing rapidly. Uh, both uh, federal, state, and local governments are you know, drastically changing uh, certain regulations, certain laws. Um, how is the California Restaurant Association uh, advocating in this current environment? Uh, I mean, we've never seen anything like this before, and it's, it's, it seems so inadequate to say that this is just uncharted territory. You know, we're flying blind, but I mean, you have government, all levels of government doing what they can to kind of flatten that curve and creating sort of these measures to stop the spread of COVID-19. And it's happening, of course, at the federal level, mostly guidance, but at the state level here in California, the state of California was a leader in the effort to suppress, to, you know, flatten that curve. Uh, But then, you know, shortly, less than 24 hours after Gavin Newsom had a press conference that said bars, nightclubs, breweries, wineries are closed, restaurants, your dining rooms are going to be reduced to 50% capacity. Um, Several hours after he had that press conference, I was talking on the phone with Mayor Garcetti, who told me, I'm about to announce that restaurant dining rooms are going to be shut completely. and the next 72 hours unfolded quickly, but you had every regional and local government managing it differently because you had sort of the areas where it was more intense. Uh, you had the risk of spread that was greater, let's say, in the Bay Area, for example. So you had clusters of counties in the Bay Area that led that before the state with uh, shelter in place. Um, and then, of course, then the state followed suit. Um, in San Diego County, just a few days ago, they basically said that, um, you know, restaurant were essential services, the employees had to have face coverings. So that just happened in San Diego. You're likely to see that happen in the state of California within a matter of days. Fresno, Fresno County uh, just passed a, a protective measure that said that employers need to screen their employees before a shift starts, <clears throat> which is an interesting place to put an employer in, but it's important that, you know, we're, we get a handle on this. But so I guess it's a way of saying that you have regional governments doing different and acting different measures. And we're trying to stay on top of it because it's changing every day. We've got a website where we're trying to keep as um, much information as current as possible. So it's a full-time job for a team of people. And our lobbyists are out there making phone calls to our web people saying, the law just changed in Fresno. Change the website. You know, we got to make sure that everybody's in compliance. And um, It's like drinking water from a fire hose. It really is. Um, and I think importantly, you know, as you have these different governments, some city governments, county governments, and of course the state of California, all um, together, um, you know, trying to, you know, suppress the spread as it's being done county by county. I mean, we're now looking at what does the future look like, not just of this industry, but what does the future look like for us, everybody? Uh, but of course, we're focused on the restaurant industry and we're trying to understand what does that, what does that look like and how does government, you know, give the all clear? Yeah. Is it going to be okay, everybody? Or you know, today's the day you can open your restaurant. And what that looks like is very complex, you know, if, especially if you look at examples of what's happening in South Korea and parts of China now that are dipping their toe into reopening the economy. 
So it's going to be a clunky start, but because of because of the local governments that are taking very specific actions that are unique to their county, it's likely going to be, they're going to open up at different levels too. And so it's very complex. And like I said, our job really is to be, stay on top of it and to advise the restaurant industry on how to proceed and what local laws they need to comply with. Before the coronavirus, uh, the CRA had a talking point that 95 cents of every dollar goes back into the food, uh, the restaurant itself, and, and the employees. I thought that this was remarkable for two reasons. Uh, the first, it means on average, no consumer is really getting swindled on price, um, which leads me to the next point, though, that a 5% margin in any business is insanely thin. Uh, based on what we now are experiencing with coronavirus, um, do margins need to be healthier for restaurants um, in the latter of 2020 and beyond? Yes. I mean, I, so three, four weeks ago, before you know, the world came crashing, um, you know, um, we were starting to see um, a lot of pressure on the restaurant industry, particularly in California. Uh, I mean, California, the, the state of the restaurant industry has been fairly healthy, largely because we have perennially good weather and we have 40 million people that like to eat out, thank God. Um, the fragility of the business model of the industry has always been there. You know, the, the notoriously thin profit margins, like you said, three to 5%, very tight cash flow, and often considerable debt, you know, for a restaurant. But because you had volume, even those restaurants were able to survive. All of a sudden, the spigot turns off, the customers stop, and that's created major issues for the industry. So, you know, I think, you know, restaurants now that they're in kind of this hibernation mode and trying to figure out how do we ramp back up, there's a lot of thinking going on right now about how do we adjust our model, you know, because there's no room for error when you're talking about, you know, for, every, for keeping for the dollar spent in the restaurant, the owner gets to keep, you know, a nickel. That's on the high end of that average, right? So imagine this, a, 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 pizza, a restaurant, a pizza shop owner does a million dollars a year in pizza, $50,000 a year is his take home after he pays the bills and you know, puts it back into it. So he just bought himself a job, right? Um, I, there's a lot of thinking going on about that now. And I think we're going to see the business model of the, in, of the restaurant industry significantly change when we come out of this. We've had a strong opinion at Food Beast and, and myself included um, that the consumer in 2019, for example, has really reaped the benefits of somewhat of a restaurant bubble for some time, uh, lower pricing, more variety basically getting your hands on almost any type of food you could imagine. Um, do you agree or disagree that we were in some sort of restaurant bub bubble um, up until this point? And is the coronavirus a market correction of some sort or even an overcorrection? I agree that the industry, you call it a bubble. I, I think I would probably you know, to say the industry was overbuilt, you know, uh, you had a lot of restaurants um, and, uh, you know, um, a few months ago, I remember being in San Diego talking to a lot of our members. They're saying there's just too many restaurants. You know, there's a restaurant opening every day and the competition is, is stiff. Um, but we started to see um, sort of a thinning of the industry right before this happened. So uh, the Bay Area would be exhibit A, you know, where the rents were high you know, the, the city had enacted a pretty um, uh, aggressive policies on all fronts across the board. They had some mandates that were making it really difficult for restaurants to be profitable. Um, and then, of course, a, a shortage of employees it was hard to find, you know, good uh, you know, employees. And so as a result, you started to see restaurants thin out in San Francisco, you know, a restaurant city that is, you know, seven square miles. I could be wrong. 
Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Am I right, Alicia? It's like seven square miles. It's something crazy like that. But 5,000 restaurants, you know, packed in. Um, you started to see um, elected officials conducting hearings in City Hall, basically saying, what do we do to protect the restaurant industry? We're, we're alarmed that there's these storefronts that are vacant, and we need to do something about this. Uh, that was literally two weeks before the coronavirus hit, and then you had kind of this cascading of events, and it almost seems like a, a world away. But I, to your point, yeah, the industry was overbuilt in many respects, um, and this is going to thin the herd. Um, I'm not sure if that's healthy or not, but what we wrote a letter to the governor about a week ago, um, and based on our analysis, we expect that unless there's some measures taken by state government and some local governments to allow restaurants to sort of go into this hibernation mode and come out, you know, relatively unscathed, although that's not realistic, there's likely to be a 20 to 30 percent reduction in, in restaurants in California, which is significant. That's uh, that's insanely significant, both back to the government itself, uh, especially since restaurants are historically the number one sales tax contributor. How impactful do you believe coronavirus will be towards state, county and local governments? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, in the old days, three weeks ago. We, you know, we would, uh, we're proud of what we as an industry contribute. I mean, not just to communities in terms of, you know, uh, we're the opposite of social distancing, you know, which is why the restaurant industry was called out first. It's like you, this is what you, this is the purpose you serve in communities, a place to gather, you know, we're the, uh, you know, the last vestige of, you know, urban manufacturing, right? Where you have a truck backed up, raw products brought in, you have the people break it down, construct it, and then you have a sales force, we call them servers, marketing people in the front who are selling this product. Um, and it's an exciting industry and really we're the glue uh, for every community. But what a lot of people don't realize is that first of all, 60% of the restaurants in California are owned by people of color. So. The diversity of our industry is very representative of the state of California. We're proud of that. We're proud that we, you know, we're the 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 industry of uh, first opportunities, right? I mean, no industry hires first-time workers. Alicia could, you know, talk for hours about this. Yeah, but we're also the industry of second chances. No, no industry hires more uh, people who have been incarcerated, you know, and gives them a second chance. It's our industry. But to your point, we're the largest generator of sales tax in the state of California. So about $7 billion a year we generate, uh, you know, uh, for the state of California. I mean, of course, the consumers, the restaurant guests are the ones that are generating, paying for that sales tax. We're providing the, the vehicle for that to be delivered to the state. So, you know, um, obviously with a, the vast majority of restaurants closed down, that's going to have an impact which is why it's so important to, you know, to make sure that in this hibernation period, we're able to come out, you know, relatively strong so we can start generating the sales tax that the state needs. Um, you're likely to see sort of the, the next year to two years, state budgets and local budgets be affected by this. So it's, you know, uh, I think a distant second in California were new motor car dealers uh, to, and generating sales tax. Um, I suspect they may be number one in the next several quarters um, because I would imagine that the impact on, on new motor car dealers would be less significant in real time like restaurants. Like the tax generation stopped immediately um, two weeks ago. And... Um, you know, our, uh, that's why, you know, when we're making the case to policymakers that, you know, we're not asking for this just out of pure selfishness for ourselves, our workers and our communities. We're asking for this because we know that we're needed as a, you know, a driver of the economic engine for our, our state and local governments. The Sorry, subject matter. <laughs> the I like that was a monologue. The subject matter of delivery um, has 
mixed reviews and mixed attitudes currently. Um, when someone brings up Uber Eats or Grubhub in conversation with you, Jot, what do you think of first? I think of the music industry. Um, so let me, I'll, I'll try to short, so make this as, as uh, brief as possible. But so uh, in 2000, when Steve Jobs stood up and, and introduced the world to the iPod and said, I got this really cool thing and we're gonna be able to listen to music on demand, any kind of music, this is gonna change the world. And it did, of course, but it changed the music industry. You know, um, and we do a lot of work with the music industry, the music licensing, BMI, ASCAP and others. And what I found um, fascinating was talking to a lot of these individuals in the music industry about sort of how technology changed the business model of the music industry. So in the old days, we used to go to the record store, buy a record, and we'd play it or a cassette tape or a, or a CD. We would we'd play it. Um, and uh, but after when we bought it, a percentage would go to the artist that wrote the music, and then uh, and in some cases the, uh, the so the songwriter and the performer, and then it played on the radio, and then for every radio play, the songwriter got a piece of the action. But it was pretty simple. Well, once the iPod was introduced, and you had music streaming and Pandora and music streaming, you had more music is consumed more than ever, and in any other time in the history of music. Um, yet the people that create the art, the music itself, the songwriters are getting less and less because you have more entrance into the music space and they're getting a smaller and smaller piece of the action. Um, so I'm kind of seeing that play out in the restaurant space. I never thought I would, but you know, a lot of these delivery companies would be, I guess, to the restaurant industry, what Pandora would be to the music industry, right? So you have more restaurant food is consumed now than ever before in the history of restaurant food. Yet the people that are actually making it, the artists are getting less and less because you have the, the third party delivery platforms are entering into the marketplace. And of course they've got to make money. So they're taking a little piece of the action as well. And so to your point, uh, when, I, when I hear about Grubhub and Uber Eats, I kind of think about it's, there's, there's a lot of similarities between how the, the music industry, you know, how technology impacted the music industry and how it's impacting the restaurant industry. The music industry's just figuring it out now. Uh, so, you know, and I think um, nobody's shedding a tear for Taylor Swift. She's doing okay. But there are sort of songwriters that really rely on those royalty checks. But the, 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 the industry and all the elements of the music industry are figuring it out. Um, and, you know, it'll be healthy again someday. And I think there's a lessons that we can learn from that. Um, the restaurant industry will be healthy. I don't think Grubhub and Uber Eats are going anywhere because uh, there's a demand for that. And I think there's just a lot of discussions, you know, and we're kind of working it out. Um, and, you know, I think we could use the, the music industry as an example of how maybe to proceed going forward. Um, it's a question of who's the customer, who, who has the customer? Is, the, is it a customer of, of Grubhub or Uber Eats or, or DoorDash or Postmates, or is it a customer of the restaurant? And I think ultimately it's our customer. We're, we're sharing that customer. And so there needs to be a better working relationship between these platforms and the restaurant owners so we can make sure there's a continuity of service, really, and a better understanding of how we communicate with these customers. So that's what I think about. I think of music. The average restaurant um, that I've been to um, throughout uh, the past decade of my career tends to save as much space as they can for their dining room while cramming as many workers and equipment as possible into their kitchen. Uh, that obviously presents some, uh, some scary conditions um, for potential workers in this environment. When restaurants are, are calling you, I think now, because now we're in, I think, stage two of the coronavirus where the restaurants that have pivoted to delivery and takeout have pivoted, uh, but now there's a question of should they be open at all? dependent on the conditions of their workers. 
Um, how is the CRA um, answering those types of questions um, from the, from restaurants? Well, uh, it's unfolding. I mean, because you have with this the the, the coronavirus and um, the social distancing, the need to social distance, especially now, is creating many operational challenges for the restaurants that decide to stay open because you're right, the, the, the kitchen is uh, compact. Um, and in a normal operating environment where you have these, these kitchens that are compact and lots of cooks and prep cooks and sous chefs and chefs and dishwashers and runners, you know, sort of packing that kitchen, that's created a challenge. I guess, you know, because of the capacity in virtually every restaurant, you know, even if they're just, uh, if they're a full service restaurant, but they're doing a delivery business, there's less, the kitchens are much quieter, e even at a restaurant, you know, that does a pretty good delivery or pickup business because the, you know, the, the volume is down significantly. Um, but you do have, you know, health departments. We're, we work very closely with every county health department. Um, on all levels of, you know, um, the restaurant operations. Um, we've been talking to, you know, LA County Health Department, San Diego, San Francisco, others, and then of course the collective of all the state health department directors on working through this, you know, how do we make it safer for the, for the worker? I mean, you have other industries that are in our supply chain that we're concerned about. Meat, uh, um, you know, meat plants, that are processing beef and chicken, you know, they're closed down because on an assembly line, you have people that are working very closely together. And because of social distancing, because of employee concerns, you're having people saying, we don't, we don't feel safe about coming to work. And so you, some of our major suppliers are shutting down because of these concerns. And I think, you know, the restaurant industry is working through that right now. Social distancing, you know, or at least, I guess, sort of the extreme prescriptive social distancing measures that are required by local governments and the state government, we're very mindful of. And employee safety is, food safety and employee safety are the two top priorities for restaurants. Um, and we, we absolutely are seeing a lot of employees saying, I just don't feel comfortable coming to work. And so restaurant owners are working with those employees and, you know, and not making them feel uncomfortable. But now that you have these new measures where employees have to wear face masks, you know, face covering um, in the kitchen and the social distancing, which is being looked after um, very closely by county health departments. So when they're coming into kitchens, they're making sure that your operations are allowing for that social distancing. Um, that's not sustainable for our industry long term, but I think while we're in this sort of impact period where counties are saying, you know, you need to social distance, uh, restaurants are um, drastically changing their operations to allow for that. Um, and I think that even when, you know, the all clear is given, you're going to see, uh, I mean, not just in dining rooms the social distancing, those measures that were initially contemplated by Governor Newsom when he made that announcement about the 50% reduction, I think you're likely to see an element of that. Restaurants on their own uh, adopting th those dining you know, conditions because they want the guests to feel comfortable. Um, and I think the same applies for you know, the heart of the house, which you know, is the kitchen and the kitchen staff. The most important, the most important part of our industry, are the people that are working in the back of the house, the ones that are unseen. I mean, I guess every 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 uh, employee is important, but the heart of the house is in the kitchen, um, and they're the ones that are working today in full service restaurants, whose health um, and safety are paramount for every restaurant. Alicia, I think this is a perfect moment to, to bring you in as we're talking about the heart of these restaurants, um, the people. Um, but before we kind of dig into how you're helping, uh, can you tell me about Restaurants Care, um, its origin, and, and your role? 
Yes, happy to, thanks. So Restaurants Care is um, an emergency fund for restaurant workers in the state of California when they face an unforeseen hardship. And we founded this program about three years ago. And the intent really is to be there for um, our most vulnerable in our industry when they face a crisis. So um, a general hardship grant, for example, might be for um, someone like Abby, who is a bartender and was diagnosed with breast cancer, had to go through treatment and surgery. So she was able to receive a grant from us while she was out of work and recovering. Um, examples of uh, a recent general hardship grant was a woman who's a cook up in Napa and was in a hit and run accident, which resulted in breaking her back. So she's out of work for three months. So really, we were meant to be a safety net for individuals in our industry and our families who, um, for some reason, are facing a hard time and need some assistance to get through it so that they can either become healthy, return to work, and thrive. That's really what we care about is, um, is making sure that uh, people are able to do be well, be healthy, and um, earn a living and um, be back to work. So as you can imagine, this crisis is um, certainly beyond our comprehension and, and um, is putting us to the test because we have uh, thousands and thousands of people who are out of work and frightened and wondering how they're going to make rent. So we, we have created a COVID-19 specific application so that we can do our best to respond to the need. Um, and we've had to figure out how to prioritize um, staying true to our mission, which is helping the most vulnerable, how we can prioritize accordingly. So um, initially we are offering grants to individuals who have been diagnosed with COVID or are the caregiver of someone because you can't work regardless of if you could have a job, you know, in, um, in some facet of our industry. And then we also are um, protecting those who may fall through the cracks and uh, have a challenge finding resources from any other program. And so those that are out of work for more than three weeks and um, may not have other assistance coming their way. Um, sort of are the top priorities in terms of our fund. But um, again, the heart of what we do is, is really about caring for our restaurant families. And um, I can tell you that when we founded the program about three years ago, over the course of those three years, we've awarded 477 grants to individuals. And that's including five natural disasters that have swept through California. So those numbers are a bit high from, from that perspective. Just through this COVID crisis, we're, you know, around 6,000 individuals who have applied for funding, and we've been able to handle, at this point, with our small team, nearly 300 grants going out to people. So the scope is, is big, and, and we're all about the community coming together in support of, um, of our families. So it's, it's a large cry for, uh, you know, for help and a tall order to fill. When I hear that the program was started three years ago, um, it sounds almost amazingly precocious um, to be able to have um, a, a grants and a foundation that can assist um, of the magnitude that you're speaking of. Uh, when the origin, with the origins of this program, um, knowing that, you know, potential uh, from car accidents to natural disasters was on the radar, but was anything remotely on the radar in the scope of what you're now facing uh, with COVID-19? Not in my, no, I, I could have never imagined this. I think when we, when we launched the program uh, in, with our first grants in June of 2017, um, shortly thereafter, we had the fires up in the wine country. And that was a really, um, important learning experience for us because it was a it was a natural disaster with a great need but what we had was the industry able to rally and come together by throwing events and doing um, special sort of fundraisers to generate contributions for that specific region about 90 percent of the funding for our foundation comes from our industry whether it's from restaurants or from the suppliers and vendors purveyors who support our industry and through events 
So right now, we can't look to those traditional sources for contributions, and the scale of this is much greater than any disaster we've ever faced. So while we um, had some important learning experiences and helped a lot of people through the natural disasters that have occurred since our uh, founding our program, this is um, just sort of not on a scale that we could have ever imagined. But we're pivoting and trying to figure out the best way to help as many people as we possibly can. That's always true to who we are and what our mission is. And so we are, we're, we're staying, staying true to that. Screwball Whiskey made headlines recently um, with a large $100,000 donation uh, to Restaurants Care. Um, I'm curious about uh, how far that impact will go um, and if you're uh, seeing anything similar potentially come through in a donation pipeline that might be able to expand uh, your impact um, in the midst of all this. Well, we are very grateful to Steve and Brittany Yang for making that sizable contribution um, through Screwball Whiskey. And it's made a tremendous impact on the number of grants that we're able to award. Um, and, and so we need more donations of that scale. And we're working with um, some wonderful people to help us make that possible. So, for example, um, Mario Topero and Ellen Chen, co-founders of Mendocino Farms, are helping us fundraise. We've got um, Powerhouse Communications, Wagstaff, Worldwide, and others um, that are helping us. Uh, Tyler Florence, who is a celebrity chef uh, from the Bay Area, has been lending his voice, and um, we're mobilizing the chef community across the state to help us with more consumer-facing um, appeals. So from the corporate gifts to um, social media challenges to the consumer piece, we're working to bring in contributions so that we can help more people. Is there, um, I'm not sure if there's an average grant because of how many different types of situations um, and environments that people come from. Um, but is, is there, uh, you know, a rough estimate of the amount of grants and people that that 100,000 donation might be able to help? Yes. So we have a range. Uh, the low end is around $350. The high end would be $1,000. So the $1,000 would be someone who's been diagnosed, let's say, with COVID-19 um, or the caregiver of someone who is diagnosed in quarantine. And then in the middle is around $500. And I'd say that we're, we're hovering closer to that $500 range per individual. Um, yeah, so you can sort of think about how many, you know, how much money we need if we've got, uh, you know, even let's say out of the 6,000 or so applications that have come through, once we sort of who's completed it accurately, who really meets the, our current criteria, we could be in the 2,500 person range. It'll take a lot of money to be giving even $350 per person to, to 2,500 people or more. The current coronavirus economy feels very boomer bust to me. Um, as a publication with Food Beast, uh, we obviously work across different food sectors, um, but we know with our contacts within the consumer packaged good industry and for our listeners, um, something, a brand that you might pick up at a grocery store, um, we're seeing sales up by 100%, 120% or more, depending on that specific category. Obviously, uh, the founders of Screwball Whiskey had a hospitality background, and I think that was a big part of the compelling reason in which they donated to the program. Is there, is there somewhat of a responsibility um, as it relates to food and beverage companies that potentially have multiple revenue streams beyond restaurants to kind of help um, with the current environment. I'm curious about like your thoughts um, about more donations specifically from uh, the beverage and CPG industry toward restaurants. Well, of course, we think that um, the spirit of the program is about the community coming together. And so part of that community are the businesses that are doing well today and in a show of support for their comrades who are not doing as well, we think a contribution um, is significant and very meaningful and um, can inspire hope for those that we're helping. So we certainly encourage it. Um, and I think for companies that do business with restaurants, it's always 
smart marketing and branding to associate yourself with an organization like Restaurants Care to, to, to demonstrate your commitment to the people at the heart of our industry. So I think it is a worthwhile investment for um, businesses to consider, and we would welcome those contributions, and we need them. So there are ways to, to donate as an individual through our website, through uh, restaurantscare.org, or through a text to give. There are also ways in which a corporation or a business can make a contribution and then receive you know, some recognition for their generosity through um, media releases and ways in which we can promote how their goodwill and how they're taking care of uh, the food service family as well. For individuals and corporations that would be interested in do donations, um, where would you send them uh, to find more information and get in contact? Well, I'd love for them to, to give me a call or to um, send me an email, but certainly starting at our website, which is restaurantscare.org, um, uh, to, to see what we're doing. But um, my email is aharshfield at alrest.org, and I'm uh, always willing to, to talk with anyone about how they can support this very important cause. Um, I'd also like to point out that, you know, restaurants are the cornerstone of our community, and, and, and John alluded to it. Restaurants give so, uh, so much to the community, from being a gathering spot for celebrations and hiring people for their first jobs to giving career opportunities, but also charitable contributions to nonprofits from from the schools to the little leagues, churches, and, and, and big state and uh, national organizations. So I, I look at this as a chance for people to give back to those who have been giving so much over the years. I mean, you can't go to an auction without seeing a gift card uh, or some sort of package from a restaurant. So let's take care of those people who really make it possible for those donations to be made to so many organizations across our state. and. Um, so that's our call to the community is um, let's help that favorite restaurant that you have, the people there that work there that are like friends and family to you um, through Restaurants Care. Jack, going back to you, um, outside um, of the restaurants themselves, we're talking about huge categories of restaurant service providers and vendors um, from fresh produce to sanitation, marketing, equipment, and more. Um, what's your advice to them right now, knowing that, you know, with restaurants kind of cutting, I'm assuming whatever they can to stay afloat. Um, just curious about um, what you're hearing from them and, and how they might weather the storm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to say, hang on, we'll be back. You know, we're going to be a loyal customer again. Um, you know, you're right. There is, you know, there's, the re there's an ecosystem around the restaurant. And it's, it's the farmer, it's the food packer, food processor, trucker, food distributor. Um, and I'm, I'm in daily contact with a lot of our suppliers and vendors. I'm talking to farmers and just you know, trying to understand because really this is about we need our supply chain, we need our network to be healthy. Um, so the restaurant industry's ability to hibernate keeps me up and many of us up at night, but the viability and the health of our supply network and our vendors also keeps me up at night. And so when I talk to those that are in the ag industry and I hear, especially the ones that have, you know, farmers that have contracts just with restaurant suppliers um, or specifically with a restaurant, you know, um, those that have contracts with, uh, you know, grocery stores, they're good. Um, you're starting to see sort of the, the shifting of the, the pipeline, you know, where a rest, the ag and restaurant suppliers are trying to figure out a way to move their goods through the grocery store. I was at the grocery store the other day and saw Cisco Foods branded uh, paper towels. So, you know, and, I'm, and I love that because we need Cisco food to be healthy. We need the farmer to be healthy, you know, and to hear that a farmer who said, I've invested water, fertilizer, and seed, uh, but I can't afford, since I don't have someone to buy my vegetables, I can't afford to pick them because that's the most expensive part of, you know, harvesting, you know, um, ag products. So they're going to leave it in the ground and it's going to, mm -hmm. they're going to till it over and hopefully next year things are better. 
those kind of things are very difficult for us. Um, And so, you know, when you when you see Cisco Foods trying to redirect some of their channels, you know, to help the grocery store industry that's got you know supply chain challenges, I love that. You know that restaurants are scrappy, but so are our suppliers and our vendors, and hopefully they can continue to be creative to figure out a way to bridge their business so we can come out, all of us, the entire ecosystem can come out of this relatively healthy and we can sort of figure out how to put the pieces back together and work again. But um, yeah, we, the, the plight of the farm worker, trucker, the warehouse worker in a distribution center, linen companies, pest control, you know, we feel for them all um, and are ho- ho- hoping that, you know, things turn out uh, for the best for them as well. Question for you both. Um, but I think as people are listening to this podcast, uh, they will increasingly think about what their individual contributions can be right now, how they can help. Um, in both of your opinions, what's the single most impactful thing a person can do right now to help their neighborhood restaurant and help their neighborhood restaurant scene? Uh, so let me, because uh, I hopefully Alicia will say, you know, hey, restaurants care, right? Because our, our our team members, and I think it's important to note that restaurant owners don't call don't call them employees or workers; they call them team members, because that's the a restaurant essentially is a family. It's not like a massive manufacturing plant where an employee is a number. The owners, you know, and the, and the team members are like family. So I think, you know, restaurants care is, is critical. Restaurantscare.com uh, I think is important, but you know, um, when this first, this crisis first started, I said, well, go to a restaurant, find a restaurant that does pickup. You know, you could do curbside pickup or delivery you know, and we're encouraging people to do that, but so much needs to be done. We're encouraging people to go to uh, dineoutca.com and sign up for sort of action uh, action alerts from the restaurant industry, so we can sort of, uh, you know, because uh, if the public really wants to help, a lot of times it's just writing a letter to their mayor or their governor or their county supervisor, just to say, do whatever you can to preserve our neighborhood restaurants. It's critical that the restaurant survives. That's it. A simple note like that would shine a light from from the consumer and from the the public's uh, vantage point that is very impactful for policymakers. We're a lobbying organization. We have lobbyists that show up to the Capitol building wearing suits every day, you know, talking policy issues with lawmakers and they're like, yeah, another lobbyist, you know, representing the industry, but to show for them to see how important we are as an industry, as a, you know, as a, as a um, sort of a glue for their community is critical. So dineoutca.com sign up, uh, you know, for our, our newsletters and our updates so we can help increase the voice of, you know, the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. And and I would say that we all have someone in our lives that is touched by the restaurants, whether back to the, you know, from agriculture to distribution, food manufacturing to working in restaurants. And so, um, you know, thinking about, we like to say our food family, uh, making a donation to Restaurants Care in honor of those individuals who are part of your food family is really going to go a long way to help the people who are um, suffering right now. And then we get through this, advocate on behalf of restaurants, we get through this, and then we can get back out there and um, and, and try to support people in, uh, by dining out again and uh, having events at restaurants and doing our part to have a thriving uh, neighborhood community with restaurants at the heart of that. Yeah, we're all, we're all sick of cooking at home. We want to eat in a restaurant. Yeah. Not burning so stuff in my kitchen. 
I'm, I mean, I'm kind of finding it hard to be creative anymore. I was thinking, yeah. do I get a cookbook and try to try, you know, something new every night? And I just don't want the effort. I want restaurant. I want to be able to go down to my favorite restaurant in Carlsbad Village and, um, and to say hi to the, 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 the servers and the bartenders and enjoy a nice meal. Well, a big thank you to uh, Jock Condi, uh, the president and CEO of the California Restaurant, Asso California Restaurant Association, um, and Alicia, Alicia Harshfield um, of uh, the executive director uh, of the F Foundation and Restaurant Care Program. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on the Food Beast Catch-Up podcast, and uh, we, uh, we wish you well and, and continue to be healthy. Thank you. Uh, appreciate the time and we're big fans. Thank you. Thank you guys. Bye. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Food Beast, thank you so much. That's uh, that's going to conclude today's episode of The Catch Up. Really appreciate you guys listening. Please do leave a review on the podcast store if you are so inclined and that's where you listen. If you listen to us on YouTube, please leave a comment. Good, bad, ugly. We're here for it. Um, and if you want to reach me or Jeff directly, we're very open and very accessible. My email is elie at foodbeast.com. Jeff's is g-e-o-f-f -F at foodbeast.com. Um, we're also very active on Instagram and Twitter. Um, my handle is book of Eli, book of, and then E-L-I-E. -E, and Jeff is Jeff Kutnick, G-E-O-F-F. K-U-T-N-I-C-K, guys, and you can find us both. We're very active. Make sure you follow us there. Let us know what you think of this episode. Let us know what you want to hear more or less of, guys. This, this podcast is for you guys. We record for hours for you guys, not really for us. It's fun for us. And uh, guys, until next week, you have a beautiful, beautiful day. Thanks, fatties. <laughs>